Lots of channels, nothing to watch, especially if you're searching for the truth. It's time to interrupt your regularly scheduled programs with something actually worth watching. Salem News Channel, straightforward, unfiltered, with in-depth insight and analysis from the greatest collection of conservative minds like Hugh Hewitt, Mike Gallagher, Sebastian Gorka, and more. Find truth. Watch 24-7 on SNC.TV and on Local Now, Channel 525. Welcome to the Christian Outlook, the weekly radio program that sorts through the issues in our fast-changing world in a way that honors your Christian faith. The Christian Outlook is part of the Salem Podcast Network. I'm Georgine Rice. This week, we'll start with a look back at the Super Bowl and a couple of issues of Christian interest and concern. Albert Moeller looks at record numbers spent on gambling. The Guardian in London is reporting that Americans would gamble $23 billion on Super Bowl 58. And the degree to which it's been normalized. My colleague Bob Burney takes a closer look at the He Gets Us ads. It was a misrepresentation of biblical truth. We'll also look at a story in my own home state of Oregon, where 10 pro-life state senators have been prohibited from running for re-election. This radical path that we're on is made possible by the legislative leaders not following the rules. Plus, John Stone Street explains why we cannot give up on the issue of life. If you don't get the value of human life right, you're going to get all the other issues wrong. We've got all this and more. I'm Georgine Rice, and I'm glad to be with you once again. I'm coming to you from Portland and my home station of KPDQ. You can hear my own program live each weekday afternoon on 93.9 FM here in Portland and in Seattle on 820 AM, The Word. You can catch the stream of my program via our website at kpdq.com or through our station app available for your portable devices. Just do a quick search for KPDQ in the App Store. Thanks for joining us. We'll begin in Las Vegas, the site of the Super Bowl, Super Bowl 58. It was the most watched Super Bowl in history, with over 123 million people tuning in to watch it. It was also pretty clear that it was the single highest sports betting event in our nation's history. Initial estimates indicate that 26% of U.S. adults bet on that game for a combined total of some $23 billion. Albert Moeller took a closer look on his briefing podcast. It turns out that one of the most interesting worldview aspects of the most recent Super Bowl is the amount of money spent on gambling and the fact that the normalization of commercial gambling has never been more graphically exemplified than by the fact that the NFL has put a team in Las Vegas and the Super Bowl, the ultimate seal of National Football League acceptance certification was put on the city of Las Vegas, which is the heart of international gambling, at least from an American perspective. And the normalization of gambling is just the biggest part of this story in worldview consequence. Final numbers aren't in, but The Guardian in London is reporting that Americans would gamble $23 billion on Super Bowl 58. Now, the fact that we're talking about legal gambling in this sense is something fairly new, and it's new because of a 2018 Supreme Court decision. And that Supreme Court decision wasn't pro-gambling. It simply struck down the constitutionality of legislation that would offer preference for the states of Nevada and New Jersey when it comes to commercial gambling. That particular arrangement, they said, is unconstitutional. 
in a nation of 50 states. And so Congress could have responded with national legislation to outlaw gambling nationwide or to establish limitations. But basically, all of that isn't going to happen. And what you see happening in Las Vegas, and furthermore, in other stratifications of American sport, it's just an indication of what has happened when our culture has decided that gambling is now going to be normalized. So as you look at professional sport, just remember that some of the biggest scandals in sport historically have had to do with gambling. Now, you had a league like the National Football League that was adamantly opposed to any involvement in gambling, And you also had the same thing in baseball and in other major professional sports. You'd have to add collegiate sports at one level as well. But when you understand this from a Christian worldview, the first thing is to understand that the Christian worldview is definitely not normalized when it comes to gambling. Gambling is presented in the scripture and throughout the Christian tradition as that which is morally wrong, primarily because of what it puts at risk. Anyone who's been close to the gambling industry can tell you about the cost. And even the states that have been benefiting through lotteries and other forms of institutionalized gambling, all the way up to casinos, and furthermore, even other things that weren't contemplated years ago, even those states are aware of the damage, and that's why they've made themselves feel better by putting together legislation to deal with the problem of, quote, gambling addiction. But We have to understand that from a biblical perspective, the problem isn't gambling addiction. The problem is gambling. But here's where we also understand complicity in terms of social authorities, because you have people who are saying, look, this is going to bring in tax revenue. This is going to be good for the economy. We actually need to invest in these gaming interests in our stock portfolio, in our retirement plan. Look at the growth, because there is no doubt this industry is poised for remarkable growth. Here's where we also need to understand the cost. You know, the Bible is also clear about the fact that one of the problems of gambling and of sin in general is that it lies. And so you have people who think, you know, I am just so close to winning. And indeed, if you take out certain parts of the equation, gamblers might be closer to winning than they actually are. The reality is it's stacked against those who participate in legalized gambling. Christopher Caldwell makes that point brilliantly when he points out that the house always wins. Now, what do you mean by that? Well, the house always wins because the house runs the game and the house takes a take. And so he says, let's take a game, a gambling situation in which there are two people who are putting $10 each into the pot. As he describes the situation, quote, the house is the gambling establishment, which takes a cut. If you and your friend Joe are betting $10 each over who's going to win the Mets Braves game, you have a pool of $20 and the right guesser wins it. As long as you aren't betting all your money, you can gamble with your friend Joe forever. It can be your hobby. But if you're betting in a casino or on an online sports book, the house must take something for its pains. Let's say it's a dollar on a $10 bet. Now you and Joe are each betting $10 over a pool of $18. As Caldwell says, quote, this is a totally different kind of transaction. Now you can't win over the long term. Carried out with sufficient frequency, this is an activity capable of bankrupting both of you, end quote. This situation in the United States is radically complicated when the government itself becomes the house. That's what happens in a lot of state lotteries and in other systems. It requires the state, which is supposed to be for the flourishing and defense of the people, to prey on its own citizens, to entice them into a game long-term, they can't win. It's pretty common for a Super Bowl ad to become a much-talked-about story in and of itself. And commercials during the contest between the 49ers and the Chiefs were no exception. One ad that caught the attention of many in the Christian world 
was part of a series of ads with one common theme. He gets us. Here's Bob Burney, my colleague on WRFD, The Word, in Columbus, Ohio. From the very get-go, I felt that the spot, the commercial, misrepresented why Jesus washed the feet of the disciples and who he washed the feet for. It was a misrepresentation of biblical truth. Um, Now, let me just give you some of my problems with the He Gets Us campaign. Now, let me say before I go any further, I pray that people come to know Jesus Christ as Savior because of the He Gets Us campaign. But I am convinced that if people do come to know Jesus as Savior, it will almost be in spite of the He Gets Us, not because of it. And let me and let me just say this for foundation. Folks, we don't need to make Jesus likable. It is not our responsibility to market Jesus and to make him likable to the masses. All we need to do is present Jesus as he really was in Scripture. And that may be a problem. I, I encourage you, I encourage you to often read the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and understand that Jesus himself created a great deal of anger. Jesus himself created a great deal of resentment. Many in the world around Jesus hated him, so much so, obviously, that they ended up crucifying him. And this this idea presented by the He Gets Us campaign that if we just present Jesus as this loving, 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 loving person, everybody is just going to automatically fall in love with him. Well, that's not what happened in the life of Jesus. And if the real Jesus living physically in Bible times did not bring about that response from the general population, how can we do a better job of presenting Jesus than Jesus did? It doesn't make sense, and it's not biblical. Here is my first and probably my greatest problem with the He Gets Us campaign. It presents Jesus in a very unbiblical portrayal. The He Gets Us campaign does not emphasize his divinity, the fact that he was God in the flesh at all. It only emphasizes his humanity. It presents Jesus as a really, really nice guy. Now, he was a really nice guy, and he may have been sent by God, and he was characterized by love, but it completely ignores the fact that Jesus was God. Now, folks, listen, listen, listen. If we lose Jesus' identity as God, then there is no way he can save us. Because a really nice guy, a really nice human being, no matter how loving, no matter how caring, no matter how compassionate he would be, there is no possible way that he could save us. 
He was just like us. And because of that, he gets us. The He gets his campaign, uh, presents Jesus. He got lonely. He got angry. He felt rejected. He was just like us. Well, if Jesus was not God, it doesn't matter that he understands what it's like to be human. It presents Jesus just as an example, not a savior. It misrepresents the ultimate purpose of Jesus coming to the earth. Now, Jesus was a great, perfect example. And we can, you know, say, what would Jesus do? All right? He was an example. But his ultimate purpose was not just to come to the earth and show humanity what it was like to be a nice guy and a loving person. He came to the earth to die on the cross for our sins. He came to be our Savior. Coming up, we'll turn to a story in my home state of Oregon. This radical path that we're on is made possible by the legislative leaders not following the rules. When the Christian Outlook returns in a moment. Stay with us. Two weeks old in an iron lung, which is, you know, like a sealed oxygen unit, fighting for my life. I couldn't, I couldn't breathe properly. I, and apparently I didn't make a sound um, from the day I was born because my lungs were all messed up. That's Martin Smith of Delirious sharing a personal testimony on The Walk, a podcast for worshipers. Join us weekly to hear songwriters, worship leaders, filmmakers, and other creatives tell stories in the form of a devotional. The Walk can be found on lifeaudio.com or your favorite podcast platform. Welcome back to the Christian Outlook. I'm Georgine Rice. It's impossible to overstate how important the Supreme Court's decision overturning Roe versus Wade in June of 22 is and has become the Dobbs decision. In the 1973 Roe decision, the Supreme Court had essentially taken the right to protect innocent human life in the womb from the people. The Dobbs decision returned that right to the people. Well, now with the power returned to the states, to the people, a majority of lawmakers in my home state pushed the abortion agenda even further than Roe. But 10 pro-life state senators here in Oregon said enough and made a valiant effort to disrupt this radical move. With more of that story, we'll pick up on my conversation with Lois Anderson of Oregon Right to Life. The Oregon Supreme Court recently ruled on a measure passed by Oregon voters uh, that rendered 10 pro-life senators ineligible for re-election. First, is that having an impact on this short session and your thoughts in general on this uh, initiative that was passed by voters and now affirmed by the Supreme Court? Well, it's the first week of session, but I think we can reasonably look at if those 10 senators decide as a group to not show up again or to walk out based on things that they want to see or don't see in the session, they could again shut things down. I think that's probably in the back of everyone's mind. There's no indication that they intend to do that. They're all, you know, there was a, a grave reason why they decided to do what they did. Um, and that has an impact, just sort of a pall over what's happening at the legislature. I think that the constitutional measure um, that was passed 
basically is taken away a tool that the minority had to keep the majority from continuing to just roll over people's rights, honestly. I mean, there there's a lot that happens at the legislature that is in the weeds, it's rules, mm-hmm. it's this and that, but it has a real impact on what passes and what doesn't pass and what's considered. I think we talked about, Georgine, when House Bill 2002 was going through the process, there's their own rules and statutes that, that they're not following. The the idea of readability so that average citizens can understand what the bill says and what the bill means. There's the idea that a piece of legislation should actually be heard and considered publicly on both sides of the legislature in the Senate and the House. And they have procedures that skip over important parts of that. And I think that all played into why Mm -hmm. these 10 made the decision that they knew this could be the possibility that they would be prevented from running again to go ahead and do that and and stop what was happening and during that session in an attempt to get us back on track in in the, this radical path that we're on um, that is made possible by their um, the legislative leaders not following the rules yeah, their and own rules by procedures. And it sounds kind of like this, oh, boring civic stuff, but it's not. It's important. It really matters. And it allows people to have more of an influence on the process, which is the way it's supposed to be. And it, it has an impact on parental rights, you know, and these really important things that are impacting our children born and unborn. Now, you pointed out in your most recent email that six are affected in 2024, four of the 10 affected in 2026. They are um, forbidden, according to the Supreme Court, and there's apparently no place else to go now from seeking reelection. Any uh, scuttlebutt on what that means for them and for others who would seek to replace them with the same views? Well, there is a federal case that's making its way ah. through the courts, but there's not a lot of consensus that that's going to be decided before the filing deadline, which is in March. So legislators have been working in their own districts with this in mind that they may not be able to run again. And there are candidates that are starting to come forward. And we are working as well because uh, all of these are pro-life senators. And we want to make sure that the voters in those districts have the opportunity to vote for a pro-life candidate in this election cycle. I have to admit, witnessing some of what's happened post-Roe has been discouraging. But the work for the cause of life must continue. We'll turn now to John Stone Street of the Colson Center and host of Breakpoint. He joined Greg Stelz on WAVA in the nation's capital. I love your article and I, I agree with it. But you say at the very end of that article, uh, deprioritizing this issue, abortion, is not an option because the stakes for our society, our most vulnerable, are just too high. Yet the Democrat platform sees abortion, abortion, abortion as a winning issue. So let's start with what's going on here. Well, I, I think it's a really interesting thing because I think conservative voters have often been accused of being one issue voters. Right. But this is something that the Democratic platform right now is being built on. I mean, uh, President Biden's campaign spokesperson has said this will be the number one issue 
going into the next election. And of course, at some level, it's just because it seems like it is winnable. I mean, ever since the Dobbs decision uh, came out overturning Roe v. Wade, uh, the ballot, when when it, when when abortion-related questions, whether it's restrictions or access or whatever, have gone to the ballot, the the people seem to want to return at least some of those uh, rights that Roe uh, kind of ushered in. In other words, it seems like a winning issue for the Democrats. But it, but it's also, I I think, abortion is the most blatant example of this vision of human flourishing right. that is so prominent in our society, which is. Uh, I have to be able to do whatever I want, especially when it comes to sex and sexuality. So it really is a non-negotiable if you embrace that vision of human flourishing, which, of course, as Christians, we can embrace that vision of human flourishing uh, because we know uh, that sin is something that can actually enslave us. And uh, this isn't something for the human good. You know, I work with this ministry, Preborn, and they say, and it's true, when a woman sees uh, the ultrasound, they overwhelmingly choose life. And so that tells me that what's happening right now, too, are, is that people are voting for things like autonomy, health care, euphemisms, and aren't really looking at the barbaric action and its consequences for the child, the mother, and society. How do we get to the heart of this matter when the euphemisms reign supreme? Well, yeah, I mean, I think Christians have to be great at conversation and great at asking questions and not willing to let false narratives lie, you know, and I think abortion is an example of a hidden evil. And anytime evil is hidden, it's allowed to stay hidden and it's allowed to flourish. The other factor in this, though, that's really, really important is that the number one factor, more and more women who have had an abortion report that they felt at some level pressured not necessarily coerced, but certainly didn't feel supported by the father. And so there is a direct combination between the breakdown of the family, instability of marital and premarital relationships, and the disconnection of sexual morality from marriage that has led to this. So rebuilding the family and basically calling men back to a place of responsibility right. is going to be a key aspect of this in the long term as as well. Now, what I fear is that if Democrats see this as a winning issue for them, Republicans are going to see it as a losing issue. Right. And I'm not convinced that the Republican Party is completely you know, packed full of committed pro-lifers. In other words, they see this more as an issue of political expediency. You kind of see language on this from certain candidates and certain parts of the conservative political movement. But look, if you don't get the value of human life right, if you don't get human dignity right, you're going to get all the other issues wrong. Uh, This is a non-negotiable because it matters how we answer the question, what does it mean to be human? Who's a member of the human race? And to whom do these rights in the Constitution apply? Coming up, our Declaration of Independence acknowledges that these are rights that are granted by a creator. We continue with John Stone Street when the Christian Outlook returns in a moment. Hi, it's Mike Gallagher. I start every day by reading through the stories at Daybreak Insider. In just 10 minutes, I can zip through 10 stories that help me start my day and help shape where I go with The Mike Gallagher Show. Over a quarter million people get Daybreak Insider by email daily, and it's available to you at no cost. Go to daybreakinsider.com and simply plug in your email. That's daybreakinsider.com. In five minutes, you will be the most informed person in the office. That's daybreakinsider.com. 
Welcome back to The Christian Outlook. I'm Georgine Rice. Well, after some of the setbacks at the state level on measures designed to protect innocent human life in the womb, a number of conservative commentators have suggested we just give up the fight. The Republican Party just needs to give up on this issue now, they say. We overturned Roe. If we are going to win elections looking forward, we just need to be quiet on this. Well, the problem with that line of thinking is that it misses a perfectly important truth. Let's pick up with Greg Stelz and John Stone Street. If sanctity of life doesn't matter, then really what's the point of all this? I mean, what's the point of good government? What's the point of human rights? What's the point of justice? Because it really is just about who's in power and who can do whatever they want to you. And like you said, I think one of the hardest things is our people haven't learned how to say the pro-life message as a blessing to yeah. those with whom we disagree. And, and so that narrative, working on that narrative is important, right? Yeah, it's a worldview issue, you know, and I think we've seen that. I, I think many of us were hoping, you know, after the fall of Roe v. Wade that America maybe was, was more pro-life than they ended up being. But really what we have seen is that uh, America is just uh, laden down. America is most deeply committed to relativism. In other words, there are no absolute right and wrongs that apply to all people at all times. And so everybody wants their own personal exception. We've got to be willing to bring it up. And I think a lot of people succumb to what uh, one of my friends calls cocktail party pressure. You know, right. and basically right. we'll get disinvited from, you know, society. And we don't want to be judgmental. And a lot of pastors won't bring it up in the pulpit, you know, because we know uh, that there are plenty of women uh, in most church audiences who themselves have made this decision or felt pressure to make this decision. But you don't get past uh, sin, and you don't get past uh, something uh, so painful like that, and and you don't actually get to the point of forgiveness if you never address it. And uh, this is a responsibility. So for, for pastors and for people in the pew, especially for parents educating their kids and the next generation, but all of us as we talk to friends and neighbors. Well, and, you know, I've said it many, many times. I said the whole issue with Roe was whether the government has the right to declare certain innocent life is not worth living. That was the issue. That's the main issue. And we said, and I said it to people who disagreed with us, I said, they don't have the right to do that to your life, to my life, to life in the womb, to when you get older and you're less valuable to society or when you're ideologically out of step. And I said, that's what we're fighting for. And you're giving up on that. And when you said it that way, they were like, oh, we didn't think that's what it was about. And I'm like, that's what it's all about, right? Well, it's so important. And you're bringing up actually a fundamental political difference uh, from the left and the right to the political spectrum. And that is, is it the government that grants rights or is it the government that acknowledges rights that are granted by God? Our Declaration of Independence begins, first of all, with the right to life and immediately acknowledges that these are rights that are granted by a creator. In other words, they're not dependent on a government win. They're not dependent upon whether this party or that party is in power. It's not even dependent on the whims of the voting public, that there are pre-political rights because they are part of our natural state. Now, you know, the founders weren't necessarily in lockstep on, you know, who the supreme being was that granted the rights, but they were lockstep in that it wasn't the government that was the supreme being. And that's what's upside down in all this. You can't have a right to liberty in the pursuit of happiness if you don't first have a right to life. And you don't have a right to life if the state can decide you count, but you don't. There has to be a universal uh, nature to this. And that's what one of the remarkable things was about the American experiment from the very beginning. 
Well said. Okay, well, you said also in your article that the pro-life message hasn't changed. Um, maybe the battle lines have, though, right? I mean, it's closer to home, but I think that's good. What do you think? Well, exactly. And, and in a sense, look, the reason we got to the point where, praise God, after 50 years of this judicial disaster of Roe v. Wade, we got it overturned, was because of the work that was being done in, in every neighborhood in America. You know, the women showing up at pregnancy resource centers, the love being shown to people who found themselves in crisis pregnancies, the, the work being done to help with post-abortive counseling and, and sex education from a Christian perspective and all that sort of stuff. I mean, look, this was the work that was really effective in the pro-life movement. But it was also the willingness of people to actually have convictions and speak up about them, even if it was going to be unpopular. So I'm not sure it's changed, but it certainly has intensified. And the local nature of it, you know, Chuck Holson used to say, salvation doesn't come in Air Force One. And I I, I thought about that. (laughs) Yeah, I thought about that line a lot, Not, not just leading up to this election season, but even leading up to you know, listen, the Supreme Court did what the Supreme Court should have done and could do, which was undo this judicial tyranny of Roe v. Wade. What they can't do is go state by state by state by state. So salvation is not going to come on Air Force One on this issue. It's certainly not going to come in black flowing robes either. It's going to come when the church is the church in the world. And that's what the world needs is for people who are committed to Christ to be committed to Christ publicly, not just privately. Coming up, gender ideology claims that a person can be born in the wrong body. And so to say that, okay, what would you be assuming? Well, you'd have to be assuming that, I don't know, that there's this like this disembodied soul that sort of floats around out there. Jay Richards, when the Christian Outlook returns in a moment. Stay with us. And one by one, I watched my dear friends get engaged, get married, start having children. And especially as a woman, I felt like there was a certain timeline that these things needed to happen in my life. Charity Gale shares a personal testimony on The Walk, a podcast for worshipers. Join us weekly to hear songwriters, worship leaders, filmmakers, and other creatives tell their stories in the form of a devotional. The Walk can be found on lifeaudio.com or your favorite podcast platform. Welcome back to The Christian Outlook. I'm Georgine Rice. As we witness the sexual and moral revolution continue to unfold, it's surprising how quickly we can undo what we as a culture work so hard to establish as good and right. I'm referring to progress on behalf of women. We saw it in women's sports. I thought we all agreed women's sports needed to be protected. That is, until the sexual and gender revolution said otherwise. Jay Richards of the Heritage Foundation recently wrote about the plight of women behind bars and a lawsuit over what occurred at Rikers Women's Jail in New York. Richards was also a guest of Greg Stelz. There's this article, the Rikers rape case. It shows how female prisoners are the voiceless victims, amongst others, of gender ideology. This is beyond painful, you know, when you start to think about it. We're seeing the sexual harassment of our young girls. They're being subject to male sexual aggression in our sports, in locker rooms, even in prison cells. Women are being locked up with men, no protections at all. This is madness, is it not? That's 
And I mean, it, people are rightly outraged by boys being in girls' sports and girls' bathrooms and pediatric gender medicine. I'm really thankful that everyone's become aware of that in the last year. But really, these female prisoners are kind of the silent victims of gender ideology. Right. There's nobody really representing them. People very often don't, don't have compassion. But I, I mean, this is a kind of basic mark of a civilization, of a civilized society, is do we separate men and women to go to prison? And obviously, the men would be perfectly happy to have it. Uh, right. It's the women that need to be protected. And we all know perfectly well why we do that, because men are much stronger, much more aggressive, obviously much more likely to commit rape. And because of gender ideology, this idea that if a person just identifies as female, a male identifies as female, uh, he should be placed in female prison so that one's self-identity actually trumps basic biological reality. You know, and that was the thing back in the day when I and I don't need, mean to bring this up again, but it, it just it still irks me when you had the Bobby Riggs, you know, thing with the tennis and all that. And I kept saying, we're the people who differentiate male, female, and we honor both. And the notion that, oh, they're just the same and it really doesn't matter was set into play in our culture. But it always hurts girls. It hurts young women. And that's the kind of thing as men, we should be like, no, we're not going to let this happen to our daughters and to our wives and things like that. You know, again, is what, what a struggle when that ideology takes root in a society, right? Yeah, and that's what's so bizarre about this, because, of course, you know, what's funny about the whole debate over gender ideology, in some ways it's different from, say, the debate over marriage or life, uh, because actually the coalition that's emerged against it is really very diverse. There are radical feminists, right. there are lesbian groups, there are even atheist evolutionary biologists who just think, well, uh, male and female, that's a real thing. And biology, they're with us on this, but it has gotten so dug in, as you said earlier, into our culture, into the kind of commanding heights of culture that do things like determine prison policy in the state of New York, that what has to happen is that in the, in the case of the Rikers uh, situation, after the uh, the plaintiff gets out of jail, uh, she sues the Department of Correction for the state of New York, not only for allowing this, but it looks like, it, allegedly at least, according to the case, there were officials in the Department of Correction that actually helped this male inmate Learn what to say. Coach him in what to say so that he can get transferred to the women's prison. I mean, you, know, you talk about the radical self-identity movement, and, and it just mm-hmm. honestly means, like you're talking about, it, it eventually means chaos and violence because yeah. there is no overarching standard that compels an individual to a moral direction or better, a moral limitation. And again, I, I, I constantly I struggle with this because it's like secular progressives say, well, we'll come up with the same basic morals as you. And I go, well, you're not doing it. Uh, is this ultimately the blind spot of this radical gender ideology? There really is no limitation. No, that's right. I mean, gender ideology, I mean, it, just at bottom, it claims that a person can be born in the wrong body. And so to say that, okay, what would you be assuming? Well, you'd have to be assuming that, I don't know, that there's this, like this disembodied soul that sort of floats around out there, and sometimes the wrong soul gets stuck in a body. And so the way you fix a person with that problem is to totally transform their body with drugs and surgery to conform to this internal gender identity, this sort of gender soul, except of course people that believe this don't even believe a soul exists. And so it really is just in some ways their kind of reduction to the absurd of this ideology of expressive individualism in which all you are is your 
sort of subjective impression of yourself. And if right. you view yourself in a particular way and your body is different, then you shouldn't adjust your thinking to your bodily reality. You should transform your body and your social surroundings, including the words and pronouns everyone uses, to conform to your subjective misimpression of reality. That's where we are. That's why I do think it's a kind of radical ideology that's jumped the shark culturally, because I just don't think ultimately it's going to sell for most people because it just contradicts this thing, male and female, that every culture and every time and place has recognized. And for Christians, this is reason and revelation. People, you, you don't have to know the, uh, the Bible to know there are males and females. Of course, the scripture also teaches that. And so to me, this is a sort of opportunity to wed, to ally reason and revelation in this battle, which is what I really think we have to do. What are the ramifications for continuing to ignore basic fundamental biology in culture? Yes, but also in medicine, in sports, in hygiene. And there's endless complications. And our young girls, I, again, I think that's the hardest part is to say this. It's yeah. our young girls that are going to be most vulnerable to this, too, right? Oh, absolutely. I mean, you, you named the, some of the places. I mean, of course, prisons, women's prisons. Right. Um, of course, women's locker rooms uh, and bathrooms, any other private spaces, women's sports. I mean, there is a reason that we segregate male and female sports, at least starting in about junior high and all the way up to the professional level, because of these fundamental differences between men and women physically. We, right. Everyone knows this. This isn't complicated or controversial. That's the reason we separate male and female sports. So when somebody says, well, but a male, some men identify as women, so somehow that's supposed to legally make him a woman, that doesn't do anything to change the reason that we segregate sports in the first place. In other words, it doesn't do anything to change basic sexual reality. Unfortunately, there's been this kind of replacement ideology in which this idea of an internal sense of gender called gender identity uh, is now treated as the most important thing. That, that It overrides biology. And in fact, we're now about a month and a half away from the Biden administration finalizing a revision of the Title IX rule that would right. redefine sex federally to include gender identity. If you want to know what that means, what that means is that if a male identifies as female, he would be treated as having his civil rights violated if he's not allowed to play in women's sports. But the women that would object to it, they would be violating his civil rights. That's how topsy-turvy this thing is if it's allowed to continue happening. Coming up. They really think that if you believe or claim you're a woman, then you're a woman. A few more minutes with Jay Richards and the final segment of The Christian Outlook. Sebastian Gorka here. Don't risk losing the trusted news, traffic, talk shows, and weather you get from AM radio stations. It's time to make your voice heard. We need Congress to pass the AM radio for every vehicle act to keep AM radios in cars. When internet and cell services are out, AM could be your only lifeline. Text AM to 52886 and tell Congress to pass this critical legislation or visit dependonam.com for more information. Message and data rates may apply and you may text STOP to STOP. Welcome back to the Christian Outlook. I'm Georgine Rice. If we're going to make progress in addressing some of the absurdities we've seen in the culture with confusion about what it means to be a man or what it means to be a woman, we need to speak up and we need to push back. Thankfully, that pushback has begun and it started to bear fruit. Let's pick up with a conversation of Greg Stelz with Jay Richards. 
you, you said this, out of misplaced compassion and confusion, we avoid af- affirming the real observable biological differences between males and females. Instead, we talk about gender diversity, natal males, gender identities, and sex assigned at birth. We should have compassion for anyone who's distressed you know, and wants a whole body, but justice requires us to drop the gassy euphemisms and state the obvious. Yes, we've got to start doing this if we really care about people, right? Absolutely. And I mean, I, I, the good news is that I would say the tide has turned on this just in the last couple of years. I mean, okay. this piece that we're talking about is in the New York Post. This was this is requested by the New York Post, which abides by associated press pronouns and things like this. But a couple of years ago, they even the Post, which is generally conservative, would probably have trimmed that sentence that you read, actually. There was absolutely nothing like that. They not only solicited the piece, they're perfectly happy to make allow me to make this point plainly. And I can tell you that that's different from even two years ago, in which case you were just really absolutely pushing against the tide to try to say these things. Like I, kind of, I feel like my job for the last couple of years as a policy person on this is just to persuade ordinary people, yes, they really think that if you believe or claim you're a woman, then you're a woman. That's really what they think, and they really think that children should have their bodies transformed to the point of sterilization to adjust to a false understanding of themselves. That's actually what these people believe. Wow. And, and you know, that's what's amazing, because I guess most people are at that point. They're like, nobody believes this, right? I mean, maybe this happens in some quirky, you know, television show or something where they're, right. so, yeah, but it, this can't be real life. And like you said, this is happening in schools. It's happening all across the country. And our children are being served up to this kind of stuff. No, absolutely. I mean, anyone skeptical, just spend five minutes and Google gender unicorn and look at images and you will see a teaching tool that's used in thousands of schools around this country. Mm -hmm. It's basically a catechetical teaching aid to teach young children the categories of gender ideology. Now, I've noticed, honestly, that sort of the younger people are, the easier they are to get this, because if you're young, you've actually been hearing this stuff. What I've noticed is that boomers generally can't mentally mentally metabolize this. Right, right. It's like, I'm sorry, this is a foreign language, and I'm 50 years old, I can't understand it. Gen Xers like me, we can sort of learn it, but it's a second language. But then you get to the millennials and the Gen Zers, they're, they are basting in this stuff, and so they, they need our help to extract themselves and their own thinking from this, this morass, unfortunately. Thank you for joining us for The Christian Outlook. If you enjoyed the program, be sure to mention it to a friend and send them to ChristianOutlook.com. Encourage them to sign up for our podcast. The Christian Outlook is part of the Salem Podcast Network. For executive producer Russell Shubin and producers David Pushan and James Blend, I'm Georgine Rice. Join us again next time for the Christian Outlook. When she was just a girl, she expected the world, but it flew away from her reach, so she ran away in her sleep.